Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome, everybody, to, uh, to the Heritage Foundation. My name is John Malcolm. I'm the Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government uh, here. I hope you have taken a moment to silence your cell phones. Uh, it gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce two friends of mine uh, who also happen to be very distinguished law professors, uh, Randy Barnett and Josh Blackman. Uh, in addition to being frequent contributors to the Vola conspiracy, Randy and Josh are here today to talk about a book that they have co-authored entitled An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. So speaking first will be uh, Professor Randy Barnett. Uh, Randy is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at Georgetown Law School, where he teaches constitutional law and contracts. He's also the director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. A graduate of Northwestern University and Harvard Law School, Randy uh, began his career as a prosecutor in Cook County uh, State's Attorney's Office in Chicago. A, a, there's a lot of action uh, then and now, I'm sure. Uh, he's also been a visiting professor at Penn, Northwestern, and Harvard Law School. He's the author of 11 books and well over 100 articles, reviews, and opinion editorials. Uh, he's the recipient of the Bradley Prize and was also a Guggenheim Fellow uh, in Constitutional Studies. Professor Josh Blackman is an Associate Professor of Law at the South Texas College of Law in Houston, where he teaches constitutional law and about the Supreme Court and also about the intersection of law and technology, uh, a burgeoning field. He's the author of dozens of law review articles and two critically acclaimed books about legal aspects involving challenges to Obamacare. He's also an adjunct uh, scholar at the Cato Institute and the founder and president of the Harlan Institute, which combines the expertise of leading legal scholars and the interactivity of online games uh, to introduce students to this, our system of justice, our constitution, uh, and about seminal Supreme Court uh, cases. And he is also the founder of Fantasy SCOTUS, the internet's premier Supreme Court fantasy league, and, <laughs> and serves as director uh, of judicial research at Let's Predict, a consulting and technology firm. Randy, the floor is yours. Thank you, John, for uh, having us here. Um, we really appreciate it. I always like being back in the Heritage Foundation, especially this room where we actually had our program on the Affordable Care Act and why it was unconstitutional. Uh, in December of uh, 2009. Um, we're here to talk today about a book, uh, An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, anyone who's watching um, on the webcast. Um, unlike my previous books, um, which were about the, well, let me 
actually relate this book to my previous book. Uh, in Restoring the Lost Constitution, I defend originalism as an approach to constitutional interpretation and argue for an orig a particular originalist interpretation of various clauses of the Constitution, like, for example, the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, uh, and other provisions of the Constitution. So that is a book about the Constitution. My second, my, my most recent book before this one, Our Republican Constitution, was about, that grew out of the Obamacare litigation and, and tries to explain in part how we lost that litigation even though we won on the law. Um, and that was because the uh, Chief Justice Roberts manifested a particular attitude towards judging. So what the second book is about is the role of judges in enforcing the original meaning of the Constitution. What is the responsibility of a judge in a constitutional republic? Um, this book, um, An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know, is not about the Constitution except indirectly. It's about constitutional law. Constitutional law are the rulings and the doctrines that are devised by the Supreme Court to implement the Constitution. Um, now, to understand how it works, you need to know something about the Constitution, and we do talk about that as well. But primarily, we're here to teach the 100 Supreme Court Cases that really every Supreme Court expert, every Supreme Court litigator um, is familiar with. And why are we doing it this way? Well, I'm also a contracts professor, and I have a contracts casebook. And when I teach contract law, I teach it according to the rule of law, the doctrines of contract law, like the doctrine of consideration, the statute of frauds, and all the other contract doctrines. I also teach the theory that underlies the doctrine so people can understand why we have the doctrines we have. Um, in constitutional law, there are doctrines. But it's my view, and I think it's Josh shares this view, that these doctrines are secondary and as a way of understanding why the Supreme Court does what it does. The Supreme Court does what it does in large part because it adheres to what's called the constitutional canon. The constitutional canon are the most famous cases or influential cases that the court thinks were correctly decided and therefore should be emulated. It also decides cases according to the anti-canon. The anti-canon are those constitutional cases that everyone agrees were incorrectly decided and should not be emulated. Think of such cases as Dred Scott uh, v. Sanford, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, Korematsu v. United States, uh, cases that today we think should be avoided. So the way constitutional law is sort of conceived of, both by practitioners and by judges, is that if you have an argument that supports or is supported by one of the canonical cases, then you have a strong argument. But if your argument can be painted as really being more towards the anti-canonical cases, then you have a bad argument. So you sort of need to know what are the good cases and what are the bad cases. Now, you could try to memorize that by having a list of good cases and a list of bad cases. But in our experience, um, having t taught constitutional law, the best way to understand why the canonical cases are as they are is to understand how they arose chronologically historically, because what we have is a Supreme Court that has been sitting for over 200 years. Now, the composition of the court has changed, but the court itself is continuous. Unlike contract law, where you study cases from England, you study cases from the states, you study cases all over the place because they illustrate the doctrine. In con law, it's the Supreme Court that has the final word. In this country, it has, has the final word on what the Constitution is, and that court has been sitting in continuous session uh, for over 200 years. So what we do in this book is we tell the narrative of constitutional law because that's really what it is. It's a story. It's a story that starts at the founding and extends to the present. 
It is the actual living Constitution. The, the, the text of the Constitution shouldn't change, but the Supreme Court doctrine does change. It evolves. Um, and to, st- to understand the li- that living Constitution, the, the living Constitution that's constitutional law, it's, it's, most, it's best, it's most efficient to observe these cases as they were decided in the historical context in which they were decided. Because some of the cases were decided, became anti-canonical cases long after they were decided. When they were decided, they were okay. Later on, they became not okay. What, what changed? What happened? Well, in this book, we tell the overarching narrative or story of constitutional law as a story. And that story happens to be made up of individual characters, each with their own story, and those are the cases. So this is an overarching story about 100 individual stories. Um, and all of this is interesting if you, hear, if you study them as a story. And as a byproduct of understanding the story, you will then understand which are the canonical cases and why, and which are the anti-canonical cases and why. Now, the other thing I want to say that would provide an introduction to what Josh is going to do is to tell you that this is not, first and foremost, a book. This is a multimedia platform. It came about because when I added Josh to my casebook, my constitutional law casebook, he came up with a bright idea, and he's, he's a font of bright ideas. Why don't we do a video series so that we can employ what's called the flip classroom? Josh will talk about that, where people, students view the videos before they do their reading, before they come to class. That flips the classroom. It changes the way classes are done. Why don't we do a video series? So I said, good idea, Josh, because most of his ideas are good ideas. I never, uh, yeah, <laughs> I never realize how much work they're going to be until I say yes to one of them. Like this pr- project took us two years to do and cost $100,000 to make these videos. Um, so I didn't know I, what I was getting into. But as, I was half, as we were halfway through the process and I could see how much time it was taken, one of my concerns was that the only people that were going to get to view the videos were students of professors who adopted our casebook. And that's just actually just a small subset of constitutional law students and nobody in the general public. So how do we make these videos available to the general public? It seemed a good idea to take the scripts that we were using for the videos and expand those scripts into a book, which is what we did. So there's more in the book than there is in the videos. But we expanded the scripts into a book, each chapter corresponding to a video. And then when you buy the book, you get the videos. So inside the front cover of the book is a code that you scratch off, and that gives you access um, to the videos. Um, and you can read, watch the videos before you read the book, watch the videos after you read the book. Um, but I will also mention before we forget that the book is on sale here for anyone who wants it. And normally when people come to these book events, they say, well, you know, that's great, but you know, I'll, I'll just go buy it on Amazon. Well, the problem is that we've had a hard time keeping them sold in stock out. on Amazon. They've sold out several times. They sold out the, basically the day they were published, waited like six weeks before they, or five weeks before they came in. They're sold out again. And Heritage is selling these books for $20 where the actual list price is $29.95, and the Amazon price, when it's in stock, is $28.95. So this is a real deal. I would grab these books. They're in stock, and they're only $20. And now Josh is going to tell you— And we'll sign them for you. And we'll sign the books. So Josh is going to tell you now— I think what Josh is going to tell you now is about the videos. I'm unpredictable. Thank you, Randy. It's a pleasure to be here at Heritage. Always good to be with my friend John and uh, Randy as well. is my mic on? There it is. Um, this is a project that was born out of a love of constitutional law. And I do have to thank Randy for joining me on this project because it was a lot of work. Um, not just a little bit of work, a lot of work. And we've each published books 
None of them ever came close to the amount of work this one entailed, at least for myself. Um, this project began as a simple idea. Um, how do we speak to students today who learn differently than students did a generation ago? Um, maybe you know young people, maybe you have kids, maybe you have grandkids. If you ever see them, you won't see them because their phone will be in front of their face. <laughs> Um, and there are two ways of approaching this sort of cultural shift. One is to fight it and prohibit students or discourage students from using media from learning. Say, just read books and don't bother looking at your phone. I find that approach somewhat counterproductive because you're fighting against a, 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 a belief that's firmly rooted that everything they need to know is on YouTube. Um, the second approach is to embrace the technology. Don't fight against the machine. And instead, encourage them to use these medium to learn. And that was the foundational educational philosophy that Randy and I chose. Um, there is a concept called flipping the classroom that you may have heard of. It's fairly popular in K through 12 uh, and is slowly making its way into higher education. And flipping the classroom is a fairly simple concept. Traditionally, how do we learn? Well, you assign pages for students to read before class, they come to class, and then you spend much of the class going over what they've already read, and then maybe if you have some time at the end of class, you actually discuss it. The theory, the why, the how, what is the relevance of this material? But at least in my experience, most of the class is focused on making sure they understand what it is they were asked to read. The flipped classroom model reverses that approach to pedagogy. Instead of having the lecture after they read in the classroom, you put the lecture at home. You put the lecture on their screen, on their phone, on their tablet. That is, they do the reading. God willing, they do the reading, and then they watch a short lecture, a short video, maybe 5 to 10 to 15 minutes in length, that highlights what it is they should be taking away, what it is that they should be learning, what are the important facts of this case, what is the historical context in which it arose, right? Where does this case fit in with the canon of constitutional law? Pose some questions which maybe don't fully answer. And at that point, the student comes to class much more prepared, ready to engage in the why, in the how of constitutional law. And that's the model that we chose. The way this book works is it's mostly chronological, not entirely, but mostly chronological. And you can start from 1793 with a case called Chisholm against Georgia, a very important case most people have never heard of. Chisholm was the first major constitutional decision at the court. And you can go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, throughout the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, and even the 2010s, where we are right now, our last case from 2016, and trace the story of constitutional law along the way. And with each chapter in the book, there's a video, some five minutes, some 15 minutes. We even have a 25-minute video. It's almost a sitcom length. And you can watch this on your own time 
and learn not just from me and Randy. We're good. They can learn from the justices themselves. They're better. Not really, but they, they're, what, they, what, they, what they say is important. In fact, they're actually not very good at explaining things. We have to chop their stuff up a lot, make it make sense. But we did, we took, we took oral argument audio to explain how are the advocates presenting this case. We took the audio from the opinion hand down when the justices announced their opinions. So it's not in our words, it's in their own words. We took footage from interviews with the people involved in the cases. Maybe you know the name Suzette Kilo, right? Maybe you know the name Mildred and Richard Loving, right? Famous people who were on camera. What do they think about their own case? We took photographs of these people from perhaps older cases where there, was, where there were no cameras. We talk about draft opinions and how the process went by, right? We talk how it is we got to the end product. We assume you know nothing. And making that assumption, we're usually right. And if you're able to make it through this 100 book, you will be fluent in the language of constitutional law. You can walk into any common law class in the country and be conversant in what you need to know. But this book isn't only for law students, and I, I can't encourage that part enough. College students will use this book very effectively in political science courses. High school students can rely on this book for AP government cases. Indeed, the AP government exam has identified 15 cases that all law students should know. We have nine of them. Not 15, but nine. It's pretty darn good. And where we really think this book will make a mark is in the homeschool industry. Um, you can use our book and platform as an entire self-guided course from start to finish. We divide it up into about 16 chapters. You could probably do this in a couple months from start to finish, the entirety of constitutional law. And if you do these 15 chapters, you will know more than most law students will because we have in here everything you need to know. I want to show you a preview now of one of the videos. And I didn't pick this video completely at random. <laughs> uh, it's a video that my colleague Randy knows uh, personally well. Uh, the case is called Gonzalez versus Rach. This was a case about medical marijuana. No, Randy was not saying, let's go smoke. The question here is whether the federal government could prohibit locally grown marijuana that was never destined for a marketplace outside the state. Could Congress shut down marijuana that's locally created? Ultimately, Randy didn't, did not win this case. This, Randy, this case ar Randy argued the case. Randy, I wasn't there yet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Randy was arguing this case, did not win this case. But it's still an effective way to explain it. So let me play a few minutes of this. I may jump around a bit to show you some of the excerpts. But I want you to follow along and think of yourself as if you were you know, a, a law student again or maybe a college student. And think, would I, would, I, would I have wanted this sort of resource when I was in school? In 1996, California voters passed the Compassionate Use Act, which legalized marijuana for medical use. California's law conflicted with the Federal Controlled Substances Act, or CSA, which banned the cultivation, possession, and distribution of marijuana. In 1998, the federal government sued to enjoin the operation of the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative. I became one of the lawyers representing the OCBC. We argued that the CSA exceeded Congress's powers under the Commerce Clause. 
However, there was an obstacle to our claim. Since money in marijuana was changing hands in the cooperative, this was clearly economic activity. My co-counsel, Robert Rach, suggested that we should bring a lawsuit in which marijuana was neither bought nor sold, but merely gifted. I wholeheartedly agreed. As it happened, Rob's wife, Angel Rage, was suffering from several intractable illnesses, including a brain tumor, which had caused a wasting syndrome. Her weight loss threatened her life until a nurse suggested she try marijuana. Using marijuana allowed her to gain weight and strength. Our legal team brought a civil suit to enjoin the application of the CSA to Angel Rage, as well as to Diane Monson, who used medical marijuana to relieve her back pains and spasms, which had not responded to conventional therapy. Critically, neither plaintiff purchased marijuana. Angel's caregivers grew the marijuana and gave it to her at no charge. Diane grew her own plants and thus did not have to buy it. Therefore, we contended that under the limiting principle established by Lopez and Morrison, Congress could not regulate this entirely intrastate, non-economic activity. And because we took care that no items used to cultivate the marijuana had ever traveled in interstate commerce, there was no jurisdictional hook. All right, I'm going to fast for a little bit. Okay, this goes to some of the doctrine. But one of the more effective parts of our video is incorporating oral argument. Now, how many of you have ever been to the Supreme Court for argument? Okay. The arguments are not well thought out. It's basically this hour-long discourse where all the justices are fighting, throwing questions, and trying to interject and interrupt. I was just there yesterday for the DACA case. It's hard to follow. What we did was we sliced it up. We pulled out specific questions, and we provided context explaining what the question was getting at. And we put it in a fairly compressed, viewer-friendly format that you can actually get the gist of the argument. So here's Randy talking about one of his exchanges with Justice David Souter. Economic depends on whether it had an economic effect on the national economy. He then equated the economic effect on the interstate market of Angel and Diane's homegrown marijuana with that of Roscoe Filburn's homegrown wheat. If there would be a large market effect, it makes no more sense to call this non-economic than Filburn's use. To this, I responded that Lopez and Morrison stood for the proposition that the mere fact that activities may have an economic... In other words, the answer Randy should have given... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but you're explaining how to answer the... I'm messing with you. He actually he answers it in a second. But when you're answering under the gun, sometimes it's not with the same clarity as you would afterwards. We actually can explain with some lucidity what's going on. Like effect on the market does not make them economic activities. To identify whether an activity is economic, you have to look to the activity itself. But an economic activity is one that's associated with sale, exchange, barter, the production of things for sale and exchange, barter. And, and that is how you bring the Supreme Court arguments to life. We don't have cameras in the court. Topic for another day, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But this is something we do have. We have the audio. I want to play one other video for you. Um, and this is one from a case that, that, that you uh, uh, may, may have heard of, maybe haven't. Um, the name of the case is called Cooper, um, Cooper against Aaron. This was a case involving desegregation. And it was truly a crisis of the highest order. 
Um, after uh, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, many school districts adopted policies that resisted integration. And at one point, President Eisenhower sent in the 101st Airborne to Little Rock, Arkansas to help integrate the schools. These are the same paratroopers who helped beat back the Nazis in, in Europe, and now they're being used on the homeland. So just watch a few minutes of this, and I'll sit down and let John ask some questions. In response, a federal district court issued an order to block the state court injunction. The situation escalated quickly. That's me, by the way. Governor Orville Faubus ordered the Arkansas National Guard to prevent black students from entering Central High School. Units of the National Guard have been and are now being mobilized with the mission to maintain or restore the peace and good order of this community. The National Guard blocked nine African-American students, known as the Little Rock Nine, from entering Central High School. Neither Faubus nor the Guard were bound by the previous court order. After a federal court enjoined the National Guard from blocking access for African-American students, the Little Rock Police Department took their place. The police had not been included in the court order that bound the National Guard. Two days later, in one of the more dramatic moments of the Civil Rights Movement, President Eisenhower dispatched the 101st Airborne to Arkansas. Mob rule can not be allowed to override the decisions of our courts. These storied federal power troopers had fought their way across Europe in World War II and held their ground at the Battle of the Bulge. Now, they were deployed to Little Rock, Arkansas. One last thing. And the I'll troops escorted. Uh, we have a website we built. That's my Twitter. Lord help you. Uh, stay off Twitter. That's very, it's, it's terrible for productivity. Uh, I mean that. Um, we built a companion website for the product. Uh, the website is conlaw.us. Um, and if you click on conlaw.us, you can actually see what are our 100 cases. And we sort them in two different ways. Uh, first, we sort them by chronology. We start the 1790s. Then we went to the Marshall Court with the 1800s. Then we went to the Tawny Court with the 1840s and 50s and the Chase Court. Go scroll all the way down. The second means by which we sort the cases is by topic. And this allows you to, to learn common law how it's usually taught with foundational cases on structure, cases on enumerated powers, cases on federalism. If you scroll through this website, you'll get a good sense of what we're covering. But by the book, uh, there's a lot that you get in here. Uh, for the price of now only $20, you get the entire video library for free. And you can read this book. And if you want to buy a second one for a Christmas present or a Hanukkah present or a birthday present, I encourage you to do so. Randy and I will be happy to sign them. Uh, again, this book has not stayed in stock. It's been selling on Amazon. Uh, I, you may not believe me. I'll, I'll, I'll show you. Um, <laughs> Look, it's in stock November 19th, so they're sold on Amazon. We're, we're, we're not, we are not, oh, the four and a half stars, that's pretty good. Uh, we are, we're, 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 not, we're not making it up. So if you want to buy a copy, I encourage you to do so now. Thank you so much. Yeah, go ahead, Randy.
Uh, before we uh, discuss this, I just want to say credit Josh for the project. So we worked on the scripts together. Uh, that was painful to go back and forth and, and yeah. trying to get it down and, and, and reach agreement on exactly what everything should be said. It was primarily based on the casebook and the teacher's manual for the casebook, but then we had to do more stuff. So that was a painful part. Then we spent, uh, how many, what did you say, like 80 hours in the, in the studios over a two-year period? Yeah, about 80 hours in studio. Um, so we were in Chantilly, Virginia, standing in front of a green screen, uh, uh, reading the stuff off teleprompters and all that stuff, and that was pretty exhausting. And then, so that was both of us. But when it came to producing the videos, the storyboarding, the audio, the audio clips that you saw, the illustrations, you know, you see this, the state of California and then little marijuana things are popping up in the state. This is all Josh. This was, uh, I didn't have anything to do with this. It's just, I, when I watch these things, I marvel um, at what he was able to do. Because we have a video production company, but they don't do it. They have to be told what to do, exactly what to do. Then they execute it, or, or and we have to then check whether they've executed it correctly or not. But he had to tell them every single thing, every, every one of those video clips um, of the National Guard, of the of 101 Airborne. Uh, these were all his choices. And uh, the book, the, the video series is this, Amazing series because of him. Oh, well, thank you, Randy. That, 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 that's very kind. But I, I do have to praise my my my, my colleague. Um, most senior colleagues don't have the sort of attitude Randy does. Most senior people say, "Do what I say and shut up." And and that was never the thing. We had uh, a lot of impassioned debates over how to explain things. It was always with one thing in mind: how to say something with maximum effectiveness and clarity for students. We never fought on personal stuff. It was always. How do we say this so the kids will understand it better? And if that is a nature you disagree with your all, all co-author, then you have, a, you have a good team. You have a good product. I drove from nuts, though. Oh, man, I drove from nuts. So in a, I still do. In a few minutes, I'll, I'll invite questions uh, from the audience. I would ask uh, that you keep your remarks short and end whatever it is you're saying with a question, uh, Mark, uh, and also that you identify yourself so our speakers will know who, who they're talking to. But I have a couple of questions to, to begin. So obviously one problem that we have in this country is a remarkable lack of, of civics education. Um, so when you were thinking about writing this and, and marketing this, what were, you, what were you envisioning? Well, this, this goes back to the way my casebook is done because this is an outgrowth of the casebook. And the casebook also organizes the cases in the same order this textbook does. Um, uh, but interspersed with all the cases is the historical context because you just cannot assume as a professor uh, that even college graduates know about the facts. Uh, it, it's somewhat remarkable what they do know about, but mostly they don't. And in fact, there's a lot of this historical context that law professors themselves don't know about. So the philosophy of the casebook became the philosophy of the videos and the textbook, and that is we have to supply them with what civics courses are not supplying them with. And actually, I hadn't really thought of it this way before, John, but I think this book, in addition to telling the story of constitutional law, tells the story of the country. Um, in a particular way. And it is kind of a civics course in and of itself, in addition to a con law course. Actually, it's your showing that Cooper versus Aaron uh, brings to mind. So Heritage of President Kay Coles James talks about the fact that when she was a young little girl, she integrated a school down in Richmond. And what a daunting task that was, including you know, even after the National Guards and, and whatnot had left, walking and having you know, white students come by and stick pins in her as she was walking up and downstairs or knocking the books out of her hand. 
uh, and you know, seeing this is really, it, it is uh, in, in some cases triumphant and other parts I'm sure quite painful. There's also a generational issue. So, for example, you know, in our generation, you know, Watergate played such a major role, and there's Watergate this, and every political scandal has to have gate after it in the name of Watergate. I mean, you really just can't expect people that were born after 1980 um, to or to know what what is Watergate. Millennials. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not a, it's not, you know, it'd be like asking us about World War One, right? Um, which is before our time, and you know, it, so it's it's hard for people who are in our age group to, if you teach, you, you do have to know this. You just can't take for granted that they, they know this stuff, the students know this stuff. Um, but I think there's a lot of professors who do take it for granted. They just think everybody I know knows what this stuff is. So if I make a joke about this or I make a reference, a cultural reference, they'll know it and they don't. But we provide all that context. Yeah, all you have to do is hang out with some young people and realize that they don't get your cultural references at all. Um, if it's on Nick at Night, they would get it. <laughs> it was, if it showed on Nick at Night. So you obviously pick friends is on Nick at Night now. Really? Yeah. So you um, so you picked a hundred uh, hundred cases. You could have picked fifty. You could have picked two hundred. How did you arrive at that number? And did you have a lot of how easy was it to pick out those cases, or did you have real disagreements about which cases to include? It wasn't deliberate. We didn't start out looking for a hundred. We sort of put together a list, and then we got to the end. And I said, "Wait a minute, Randy. We have like one hundred and three. And we were so close, like, I do 100. And it wasn't meant to be 100, but we sort of used these cases as those that everyone should know. Now, how do we come up with this list? Uh, we did a survey, and we looked at a dozen of the leading constitutional law casebooks in the market, and we tried to figure out what are the cases that appear in all of the books, right? And there was no single canon, so to speak, that appears in every book. But these 100 appear in roughly half the book. So some on one, some on the other. And these are very representative. Uh, so no matter what common law casebook you use, you'll find overlap. And it's not ideological. Erwin um, Chemerinsky, the dean at Berkeley, wrote a foreword for a book. We agree on probably nothing, almost nothing maybe, right? And Erwin um, wrote this foreword for us and we compared our book to his. 80% of our cases appear in the Chemerinsky book. The common law canon is important regardless of your politics. This is something that everyone should know. Uh, you know, maybe some point we'll expand it beyond 100. You know, we have new cases coming out every year. I can't say for sure. Randy's already giving me this glaring look. Anything about more, more video. I know. I, 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 <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm giving him a break. I think I may actually do 100 property. I also teach property law. 100 property cases have remained. I'm bothering someone else about that now. It's not your problem anymore. Um, part of the selection is that in order – say there's a, a landmark case that you really need to know, but it turns out to understand that case, there are two or three previous cases that that case either builds on or departs from. Well, you have to backfill those cases. And then if you're teaching a chronological, you actually start with those cases, and then you build up to the case that, that you really need to know. So by um, – some of these cases are subordinate to the big cases to allow you to understand the big cases. So, I mean, you two are, are – Guys are smart, smart guys, and but you have similar uh, political leanings. And obviously, Erwin Chemerinsky is different. He wrote the forward. I'm just curious: is when you put together your scripts and you put together your text, did you share this with other scholars and sort of get their views as to whether they, they thought that this was an objective uh, perspective, or how did you how did you do that process? Well, we didn't. Um, <laughs> built, built into the casebook, after my, I asked for Josh to be on the, the, sec, the third edition of the casebook. The first edition of the casebook I did by myself. 
The second edition of the casebook, I was getting some feedback from users that there was some shading in the, um, uh, in the context that I was providing, which was not my intention, but sometimes you just don't recognize your own blind spots. So I brought on a co-author who was a classmate of mine from law school, who I know was politically on the other side, and he became my co-author for the second edition, and his task was to go through the entire text and eliminate anything that looks shaded to the right, let's say, or provide context so there would be, an, if there is a, a one position, they'll also provide the other position. So in that sense, the entire text of the casebook on which this is based was already vetted before we actually did that. At the same time, we were, I wasn't, I was still a little bit concerned about how this, what the response would be, but when we sent it out for reviews, and we have book blurbs from uh, Jack Balkin at Yale and from Michael Dorff at Cornell um, and a bunch of other left-of-center law professors, um, what we got back was that they thought this was a fair and balanced um, rendition of the cases, and even where we do inject our own perspective, it's, it's few and far between, and it's, it's not heavy-handed. So we, I'm very gratified by the book blurbs we got. Yeah, I, I, tried, I try very hard when I'm not in my op-ed mode to be as neutral as possible. It, it's tough. Um, you really, I mean, Randy and I have an advantage because we live in a world governed by people who don't agree with us. And so on a daily basis, we have to understand what it is we're saying and how it may trigger others. I mean, just, that's just... It's a fact of life. It's, it's a fact of our life. So we're very competent. In fact, I think we are more aware of our biases than the people on the other side are by a factor of 10. Um, I, I don't think most academics see the shading they do, right? But we recognize that so we try to minimize uh, 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 our shading. And I think if you look at this book, uh, there are a couple of chapters we have opinions injected. The Gonzales v. Rach, the case that Randy argued, I think is injected. Maybe some of the New Deal cases were maybe a little bit critical of the New Deal cases. But, you know, we'll, we'll just, between friends, we'll admit those are there. But we, we tried to be neutral um, and we tried to be balanced. And whether we succeed or not, uh, I'll let... Readers be the judge, but, but we made a conscious effort not to make this some sort of right-wing rag. That's not what we did. One other thing about my general pedagogy for teaching con law, um, which and I teach at Georgetown, and I have a diverse group of students, and I just had a student tell me just a few days ago that uh, she didn't know what my views were, which I, was, I wasn't actually trying to conceal them, really, but, she's, but apparently I present enough of both sides that she, she really wasn't clear. The reason why I can do that is because the pedagogy of the casebook and the textbook and the videos is not to focus on the results of these cases. The way con law typically is taught is professors say, okay, there's this result. How many people like this result? How many people like that result? Now, marshal all the arguments on behalf of your side and then debate the results. So you're for abortion or you're against abortion. You're for uh, affirmative action, you're against affirmative action. I don't teach con law that way. I don't understand con law that way. I understand it in terms of the basic constitutional commitments of what usually is two sides of the court. What is the constitutional commitment that leads the right side of the court to their views? What is the constitutional commitment that leads the left side of the court to their views? That's what I try to uh, explain. So I'm always explaining both sides of the court in terms of their constitutional vision. Strong national power on the one hand, or federalism on the other hand, and it and it really and the results of individual cases are really secondary. The way I teach constitutional law, and therefore the students who are interested in results don't know necessarily how I come out on it because I don't tell them what. So where we have our opinions, it's our opinions on sort of the cogency of the underlying theory or the interpretation or whether the facts were applied well. It's not our opinions about whether we're pro-life or pro-choice. That's not in these things. So none of our political opinions are there. 
our, uh, our opinions that reflect our judicial philosophy may be there. I wish that there were more judges who approached uh, actually adjudicating constitutional issues the way that you teach constitutional law. Uh, so with that, let me uh, open it up for questions from the audience. If you would just hold up your hand and get a microphone handed to you. John. Yeah, John Vecchioni, cause of action. The way you selected them sounded um, very reasonable, but how'd you do the last 10 years? They're usually the case books haven't caught up. You said there were cases from 2016, and sometimes you don't know until later that a case is important. So just the more recent ones, what did you do? Um, I would, I'd actually be curious to hear what Josh's answer to this question is. I think we uh, didn't emphasize the most recent cases, in part because you don't really know. Um, the, we're teaching the constitutional canon. We're teaching, in some sense, what you need to know to interpret the next case. So when a case goes up and they're argued, uh, if you were to sit in our oral argument, you would have an idea of why the right side of the court is asking the questions they're asking and why the left side of the court is asking the questions they're asking, because each one of these justices carry in their own minds the narrative we're teaching. Only they view themselves on one side of the narrative or on the other side of the narrative. Uh, but that's how they view themselves as players in this part, in this play. So we have an overarching play that runs for over 200 years. It's a long, it runs longer than the Agatha Christie's mousetrap has run in London. Um, uh, and there are two kinds of characters in this play. There's the characters of the cases themselves, and then there's the characters of the justices themselves. So we're trying to teach what their mindsets are. And in their mindset, it goes all the way back to the founding, every one of them. They carry a mindset back to their interpretation of the founding and the Civil War and the New De Reconstruction and the New Deal. Um, and that's what we're teaching so you can understand the next case. Therefore, we don't put a big premium on the most recent cases, except, for example, I think we have the gay marriage of Burgerfeld case. And the reason why, I, the reason why I would say it's there, because it is the culmination yeah. of 20 years worth of judicial opinion, starting with Lawrence v. Texas and Romer v. Evans and a bunch of other cases. We didn't know where those cases were going, and they finally got there. So you would want to put the capstone case of that line of cases in, or you'd not be telling the whole story. We're, we're kind of lucky in the timing that that's a whole line of cases that until that case was there, everything was pointing towards it, but it wasn't there. We'd have to, it would have been harder to do the videos until that case came out. Now it's easier because there is actually a, an ending of that line. Yeah, like Avengers Endgame for SCOTUS. Um, Kenny just snapped and never mind. Um, <laughs> Constitution disappeared. See, see, these are references. Avengers Endgame. You oh, Avengers it. Endgame. That's right. Like Herman's Hermits before. God, now no. Avengers Endgame. Yeah, yeah. yeah Justice it, Thanos, it. right? I got it. Um, people on Twitter are laughing now. Um, we overestimate how important the current years are, right? Uh, but we're in a period that you know. Oh my God, the most worst period. No, we, we've been in worse periods, right? Things have been more chaotic, right? The Supreme Court's term this year. You know, it's a big deal, but you know, I think in. I think in 20 years, the Roberts Court will be seen as a blip. Uh, uh, please don't quote me on that. But I, I, I think it's a fairly inconsequential court because of Roberts' minimalism, right? The left gets whatever they want and the right gets a sort of whatever. I think just, it will not be seen the same way the, the, the Warren Court was or even the Rehnquist Court. The Rehnquist Court put some points in the board with federalism, with 11th Amendment. They have cases that actually move the ball. I just think the Roberts Court just is, is middling, right? He's been in the court now almost 15 years. Can you name one major doctrinal shift that, that actually will matter in the long term? Heller has been a blip, right? Shelby County was a one-off. I think Citizens United was a one-off. Um, maybe abortion, something might change this term. I'm doubtful. But like just everything's just so slow and incremental that 
almost nothing changes. Uh, the number of cases we have from the Rehnquist court actually is more than the Roberts court cases. Uh, just we have more. Think of Lopez and Morrison. Those were those were game changers, right? The, the, and and Rage, sorry, but you know you at least had. Sorry, 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 but but those were those actually those change things, and just the Roberts course is just so bleh. I just, I don't I don't know what to make of it. I but anyway, that that that's my view on the present moment. Well, you you got Fisher one and two in there. I saw Fisher yeah. was your last. Cause, I mean, you know, what did that, what did that do? Berrigafell, Heller. I mean, these are cases I think that are that are. I mean, look, the, the personnel in the court changes, so things can change, uh, but. Yeah. You, you, have thing, you have things happening, you know, for the left side of the court. I think Josh's point yeah. is you don't really have any game changers from the right side of the court. It's, it's, yeah, Heller. I, I, and Heller has been a blip until they maybe this year they'll come back maybe and actually year. overcome the resistance of lower courts to Heller. But uh, the lower courts are in hashtag resistance mode. That's what the Supreme true. Court said in Heller and McDonald. That that's certainly true. I think the court is biding its time, and you know. Well, that's the problem. They're right. biding. It's been over ten years since McDonald was decided. No, no. no. I look. I I think that's biding their time. Is right. This is this is the Roberts Court. No, I look. I when you have an incrementalist who's right in the middle of the court, you had Justice Kennedy who was. You know, depending on which side, which day he broke was how I mean, he was at feeling. At the moment, I think we day. can be pretty much assured that unless there's a six vote. Things are going to pretty much stay the way they it's are. It's seven votes. We might have a five-four majority on a consistent basis. We need seven. Other questions? Yeah, over here. Colleen Stimson from the Heritage Foundation. Well, first, congratulations on this. This is an outstanding tool uh, for learning for all sorts of people. All the interns at Heritage should be forced to watch. I mean, they, they should. It should be suggested that they watch. Awkward orange. I'll just 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 put in their eyes. Yes, the drogies. Um, so, uh, two questions. One is, if if you had an unlimited budget, as opposed to one hundred thousand dollars, would you have changed anything? Uh, and Hired second, actors. And, and, well, okay. And then secondly, uh, what have you heard from young people? Because they're really, uh, I think, a bellwether in terms of whether that's going to be receptive from to them uh, and those of us who will be buying the book for young people for Christmas. I'll uh, be curious to hear what they've said to you so far. Well, in truth, we had a $60,000 budget, which we blew through um, and then had to figure out how to, how to scrounge up the rest of the money. Um, uh, we had to dig to our own pockets, by the way. This was some, not – we are losing money on this book. We actually had to advance our royalties and pay out of our pocket for some of them. Because of the overage, which we were – Some of the editing costs. And we were responsible for the overage because um, – and we, told, we, you know, we, we, we gave the publisher a budget and we told him how many minutes and, blah, 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 and, it was, and we gave him our best – our good faith estimate. It just took longer to do these cases right than we anticipated. We thought they'd all be three to five minute videos. Well, they're five to they're five to fifteen minute videos. Well, that runs the cost up. So, in a sense, um, we worked as though we had an unlimited budget. In the sense that we <laughs> we did it the way it 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 did to get it right, and then it turned out the price tag of that was forty thousand more than we had to spend, and we came we had to come up with the differential. We didn't we didn't do forty thousand out of our own pocket, but we did you know maybe twenty five out of our own pocket. Um, and so um, that's the answer to that. As for what the feedback is, I've now used it to teach two con law classes. Con law one, which is our structure course at night, I taught in the spring, and I and I just fin- I'm just finishing up con law two, uh, where the videos were available to my students, and it is a game changer for them. They all say this. It it, it is. They all watch them. 
Um, uh, this is what their testimony is. But for me as the teacher, boy, oh, boy, does this flip classroom idea work because now I have so much more time freed up in class to talk about the big issues that I always want to talk about, but I'm always spending half the class just getting them up to speed on what the facts of the cases are and making sure they've read it and grilling them on it, you know, cold calling on people. And I still cold call people to have them state the case. You know what? They just state the case. There's no discipline. I don't have to move on to the next person because they, that person didn't understand who the parties were. So it really, really works as a booster rocket to get you into orbit when things are then going to happen. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's totally, it totally works. And the other thing is, is I watch the video before I do the reading for class because it helps me. I haven't read them. I'll teach, if I teach it every year, I'll teach a, a particular class every once. And there's a thought up before. I watch the video, then I'll read it and again. And then to know what the basics are that they'll have so I'll know what I can do beyond. Words part sentences with various clauses and, and, you know, double negatives. We try to be as clear as I think I think <laughs>